Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Waco Real Estate Today with Nathan Embry. Sponsored by Kelly Realtors. I'm sitting with Megan Fro. She's the outreach coordinator for the Texas Broadband Development Office. Good morning, Megan. Good morning, Nathan. Hey, I was uh, looking at some of your promo information that was sent to me, and it says that Texas is one of six states that did not have a broadband plan as of 2021. And also, many of Texas cities are featured on the worst connected cities list. Um, So if that's true, it sounds like y'all have found, someone has found an, an issue or a problem to be solved. Can you verify that or explain what's going on there and what the solution might be? Absolutely. So yes, you're correct. Uh, Texas was one of six states that did not have a broadband office nor a plan uh, going into the pandemic. Uh, that was a real problem. Uh, and it's been a problem for a long time. Pre-pandemic, uh, we know that broadband issues have, have been going on, but the pandemic really brought it to light and the stars aligned and Funding uh, became available uh, to, to solve this problem, and, and not only in Texas, but United States. Um, so we now have a broadband development office. It was uh, started by House Bill 5 just this past September, and uh, I came on board in January. We're a small team. We've got uh, three full-time employees at this time. We're hiring, so if you know of anybody, mm-hmm. send them our way. Okay. But yes, we are developing a broadband plan for Texas. In fact, that is going to be published tomorrow. So this is great timing. Uh, That's going to be live on our website tomorrow. We're sending out some gov delivery blasts. We'll have a newsletter announcement as well. And, and Texans can really comb through that and figure out what area they're in, what we've discovered about their, their area, uh, areas all around the state and how we are going to go forward and tackle the uh, digital divide here in Texas Um, Ernst and Young was the consultant that we hired to help us develop that plan. And so it is, it is going to be available tomorrow. Let's back up, clarify for me what, what is broadband and why is that important? Sure. So broadband is, is essentially internet, but it's high speed, reliable, always on internet. Now the FCC defines broadband as 25 megabits over three megabits. So upload and download speeds. That's outdated. They know it's outdated, and we're looking to increase that. Um, So any funding that's coming through Texas, we're going to be looking at 
100 over 20 as far as the download and upload speeds that we're looking for. 25 over 3 is, is you know, that's not going to get you a streaming service and your child doing homework and anybody else checking emails. Um, it's, it's, it's really a minimum speed, but that's technically the definition of broadband is 25 over 3. Okay, and the goal is for this plan to bring broadband out to rural areas or all cities? or Certainly, yeah. Uh, rural areas have, have a large problem with infrastructure not being available, but this is also an issue in urban areas um, with affordability, uh, digital literacy, digital equity. So we're seeing it not only in rural populations, but urban as well. But we know for certain that rural areas are having a, a big problem because they don't have the infrastructure available. Okay. And so can you talk about areas that this might affect? So for example, let's take a rural area because we have here in Waco, we have lots of rural yes. areas outside of Waco. So what might that affect or how can these communities use this broadband effort? So the, the federal government is providing uh, a large amount of funding through different different buckets of funding, um, the, the largest being the IIJA, which is the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act. We don't know how much is coming to Texas yet, but each state is going to get at minimum $100 million. Uh, Texas is anticipating probably $3 billion. And then through the capital project funds, we've got $500.5 million that we're drawing down from Treasury right now. So there's a large amount of funding. So what I always tell communities, rural communities especially, to become shovel-ready for this funding um, through our office, we need them to figure out what's going on in their community because we don't know. They're going to know best. What are the speeds in the area? Do we have areas that, that are getting no Internet at all? that would fall below the FCC definition of broadband. Figure that out. Um, where's your tallest tower? Where, where could we put some wireless, you know, signals? Where, where, where can we branch into the closest middle mile project? Um, they need to know that about, you know, their area. Okay. And so if they got this high-speed internet or broadband brought to their community, will it affect things like agriculture? or yes. telehealth, or what can they do if a community has this new fashion? Sure. Right? So uh, first and foremost, economic development. Um, you know, most, most people now are wanting to leave the larger cities, these urban areas, and they're looking for rural locations, yeah. but they can't if there's not broadband yeah. available. They can't uh, telework. They can't do telehealth. Their, their children can't do school online. And they can't run a business if they don't have broadband. It's um, it's really it's really a, you know a, a utility at this point. Um, a lot of people are, are deeming it such. Uh, it used to be a luxury, and now it's an absolute necessity. We're looking at uh, you know agricultural uh, equipment now is is being run just like our toasters and our Alexas and everything else. There's agricultural equipment that needs a broadband uh, stream to to function and. That's a huge part uh, for, our, for our agricultural community. Excuse the ig ignorance here, uh, but I'm one of these guys. I just need it to work. So I don't exactly know how it's working. But so let's say you bring uh, fast internet to a rural community. Is it hooking up every single house? Is it hooking up every single building? Is it hooking up just the downtown area? Sure. So that's the goal, that it would, that it would be a connection for every single household, every uh, business, every farm and ranch. 
um, truly to close the digital divide, we would need everyone to have access. And that's that's the mission of our office. So you're going to hear a lot about middle mile projects. And middle mile is that fiber fiber that's going to, let's say, come to a community, but maybe it doesn't branch off down the road to this address. And the connection from that middle mile to that address is what we call the last mile. And so we have some funding coming through the Capital Projects Funds, and we're going to focus primarily with that funding on that last mile connectivity. We've heard some stories from people who, you know, depending upon what internet service provider, and it, it may be across the board, but there, there may be fiber out there on the road. And to bring it into their house, uh, an internet service provider is telling them that's going to be two or $3,000. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not, that's not doable. Uh, and that's not doable for every single household. And so the funding that's coming is really to, A, incentivize, you know, internet service providers, make the return on their investment uh, more manageable so that they can make those connections and bring broadband to every address. Do you have examples of real-life situations or uh, maybe theoretical that uh, before and after? So we've got a rural area without it now, and um, a real-life example would be great, but if not, just what, what's the vision after this? How is that supposed to affect the community? Uh, just a couple easy things off the top of your head. Well, uh I think the best example really happened during the pandemic when all of the kids went home to do school. And in a rural community, let's say there isn't broadband at their home. And so we have heard all kinds of stories from all different rural areas. Kids going early, early morning to McDonald's, to the parking lot, on a cell phone to try and turn in their homework. Or they're leaning against their library building in the rain trying to connect to their classroom. That's not okay. That's not okay with me. That's not okay with our office. And I know that's not what the state needs. So let's say now we have broadband in that Mm. that community and it's affordable and it's reliable and it's always on. And let's let's say we've got to do some classroom from home and now they can log in in their living room with the the safety that that provides and connect. Um, Another huge example is telehealth. Uh, that's that's growing in popularity everywhere, um, not only because people need to be able to connect to a doctor quickly and easily, but there's some specialists out there that people have to drive many, many miles to that they could connect to in their living room if they had broadband. Um, and so now it makes that access to that doctor something that's, you know, doable sure. as opposed to the expense of traveling uh, to get there, and they may not be able to do that. How does this affect, I think um, there's been some effort and some money put into high-speed satellite uh, internet connections. And so how does this effort, does this undermine that or does it work hand-in-hand together with it or how do those two get along? Well, our office is technology agnostic. Um, you know, the way I look at it is any way we can get connectivity to people is is, is great. Um now, when it comes to the federal funding that's coming, uh, specifically IIJA funding, which is the largest bucket of money, we have to look at, at spending that funding in a cascading effect. And they're looking at unserved, underserved, and anchor uh, community anchor institutions. And the way that they've defined it, if an area is solely served by satellite, they're considered unserved. Mm. So 
satellite is not maybe always reliable, not always on, um, maybe not always affordable. And so that's something when we look at the funding that's coming, you know, they're, they're truly leaning towards getting fiber to the home, fiber to the business, fiber to the community. Um, there may be areas that that's not possible uh, mm. based on terrain. Um, and, and, and we may have a need for satellite service in those areas. But when it comes specifically to the funding coming through our office, we're going to have to look at communities that are being served right now by satellite as unserved. Mm. Okay. Are there going to be any requirements or mandates for real estate owners or real estate sellers or real estate buyers going forward that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of, but I know when it comes to real estate, and I've had this conversation a few times, you know, we have areas that, that maybe broadband is just not available at all. And those are homes and those are businesses that are they're hard to sell. Uh, they're hard for people to buy because they, they have to be thinking long-term and future-proof of their business and of the needs of their family. And so certainly if broadband is not in an area, it, it's going to make it less desirable to a buyer coming into that market as opposed to one that can go, yes, I can connect right here. Here's the service I can get. Yeah. I've got several providers to choose from. Um, it's making those communities and those properties uh, a little harder to sell. Yep, that makes sense. When do you see the fruits of this labor, what you're doing, the money being spent? Uh, when do you see dirt turning or trenches being dug or whatever it takes to bring fiber or whatever the plan is? When do you see, when, when might that happen? So the first funds that are going to go out of our office to, to tackle this issue, uh, we're looking at putting up a grant program, hopefully in October. Uh, that's going to be primarily for the CPF funding. And so that's going to be, I mean, as quickly, if, if, a, if someone can apply and have a shovel-ready project and it can be approved, you know, as October quickly of this as, year? yes, October of this year is when the funding will begin to go out. Now, IIJA funding is going to, it's going to be a little while before that even comes to our office for us to disseminate and for people to apply for. Um, but CPF funds have to be expended by 2026. So the fuse has been lit mm -hmm. and we are, sticking. yes, we need to get that funding out. And October is, is, is what we're shooting for. And so depending upon the shovel ready projects that come to us, you know, if, if the applicants come through, they're approved uh, as quickly as they can, you know, start digging that dirt and getting the fiber laid or whatever we need to do. Uh, it's going to be quick. Can you think of any examples specifically? Let's switch to just kind of like commercial buildings now. Can you think of any specific examples? You're one with the schools and the pandemic and the homework. That was great. Can you think of one that might affect commercial real estate sales, um, buildings, anything off the top of your head? That sure. Yeah. E-commerce is a, you know, something that comes up again and again and again. Um, and properties that, that don't have access, um, it's just not going to be connected and it's not going to be for a while. That's a property that's probably not going to be filled. Um, people are looking now to do business online. I mean, even just our computer processing, the uh, credit card machines, everything now hooks to the internet. And it's near impossible to do business without some link to the internet. And we're finding that to be a problem in areas where we have buildings that aren't wired for internet, that people uh, can't connect wirelessly even. Uh, we've, we've had calls um, 
just cell phone service, you know, for whatever reason, they, they can't connect even with their cell phones. Um, you know, that's, that's really going to be a problem for a business owner, for a landlord. Um, that's, that's a primary, uh, does it have water? Does it have air conditioning? Does it have internet? Yeah, um, that's, that's really been a concern. You mentioned that this plan's coming out tomorrow. Yes. How can, what are we going to see in this plan? Can you just dive a little bit deeper into that? And then how can people see it? Okay. So the plan is coming out tomorrow, the first state broadband plan. It will be on our, our website at broadbandfortexas.gov. Um, it's going to be, <laughs> we're going to be doing uh, quite a bit of social media and press releases. Um, we we're, It's going to be highly publicized. So tomorrow is the day. Uh, I think everybody's going to have access to the plan. And what the plan is, and it's just an initial plan. We're going to be evolving this over time. As we learn more, the plan will grow. But we we went on a 12-stop listening tour with Comptroller Hager, and we met with the 12 economic regions of Texas, with community members, stakeholders, uh, taxpayers, you name it. They were at this listening tour. And we heard from these communities, what, what are the problems? What's the issue? Because it may not be the same issue uh, on the Gulf as it is in Amarillo, as it is in Abilene. Um, and, and what do they see as a way to fix this? Uh, what are their needs? So we listened. Um, all of that information was compiled and goes into the plan as well as all of the research that we've done. We had 16,000 survey responses to ask about broadband connectivity and issues. Um, So it's really a culmination of what we've seen all around the state, what the issues are in the different regions. It's going to outline that. It's going to kind of define what we're seeing, um, what we think the next steps will be for these different areas. And and that's going to be our guiding star as an office on how to go forward um, when this funding is available, where does it, where does it go first? And, you know, where, how, how can we connect um, those who that are, you know, unconnected at this point? Good. That wraps up my questions. Do you have any other thoughts or anything that I missed that might be important for people listening to the show for real estate advice or real estate thoughts or Anything else you want to get out? Sure. Something else our office is doing, and this will be uh, January of 2023, we're putting together a broadband availability map. And this is where I think it's important that communities take part, uh, have an idea, like I said, of of the services that are being provided, uh, who's connected, who's not connected, what are the speeds, because we're going to rely on that information as we build out this, this map. And we are going to form an address level. Uh, we're going to know what what uh, exactly what kind of speed you're getting at what address. And we have a year to do that. Um, so we're going to be doing that. I think it's important that anyone that's involved in communities, I think real estate is huge. Yeah. What are you really seeing? Um, we may hear something from a service provider saying, yes, this is a covered area and this is, but, but are you receiving those speeds and are you truly covered? Um, getting that feedback from the community from, from real estate agents, I think is huge because you're everywhere. You're seeing, you know, a diverse uh, number of, of properties. What are you experiencing there? Uh, can you connect? Um, let us know and and work with our office as we build this thing out. Uh, it's, it's just starting, you know, this is just a beginning and it's going to take the teamwork and the partnership from community members to, to get it done. Will that be a public map that everyone can Absolutely. use to see if they're going to buy 
something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You could, you could definitely access level. that. Um, it's something that we're going to use primarily to know who's unserved and who's underserved when it comes to the funding that's coming available with those guidelines that we have. But yes, that's another use. It's going to be a tool for everybody. It can be used for a lot of things um, to, to discover, okay, do I want to move here? What's what's yeah. the service? What's the speed? Can I connect? Um, so that's going to be something that we, it's, it's going to be a, a big tool for our office. <clears throat> we have a map that we use that's a lot like that, the GIS maps around here mm-hmm. that show water lines and sewer lines and zoning and all the things. And so if you added that, Exactly. Like another layer mm-hmm. that, that could be helpful. So we we plan to have layers of speeds basically. Oh, cool. So that twenty five three, you know, do you have the bare minimum to be considered broadband? Um, and then the one hundred over twenty, and then one hundred over one hundred symmetrical, which is truly the goal uh, to future proof everything. We'll be able to see who has that, who doesn't have that, um, and it's it's going to be great. Good. Any other thoughts? You know, not at this time, but I'm I'm glad to be in Waco. It's yeah. always a wonderful town to be in and, and see the growth. And you're uh, you're at Austin. Your office is in Austin. Yes, yeah, we're we're downtown Austin. Oh, nice, yeah. cool. All right, this has been Megan Froze. She's the outreach coordinator for the Texas Broadband Development Office. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Waco Real Estate Today with Nathan Embry. Sponsored by Kelly Realtors. I'm sitting here with Bobby Horner with the City of Waco, the Public Information Specialist. And he's agreed to come on because we're going to talk about what it's like to put a house on the ground somewhere uh, that someone can live in. Because supply and demand, there's a lot of people moving here to Waco, to this county, and there's not enough housing units. Mm -hmm. Um, The demand has outpaced the supply. So what we need is people to build houses so people can buy houses. And you're going to talk to us about what that process is like for somewhere to live. Um, Where would you like to start on this little journey? Well, uh, what I thought I would start by talking about is just you know, if I want a permit to do a house, what do I need to get through the city to get that permit? Uh, and a little bit of that process. I'll talk about that initially. Um, and then we can talk a little bit about uh, some different versions, you know, whether you're adding on to the house uh, or, you know, do do I need a, a permit for this or that kind of thing? Okay. And uh, we can kind of go from there. Okay. So let's back up to... Uh, someone who needs a permit to build a house. So this is someone who, who either has land already or has, who has who is looking to purchase land. Mm-hmm. And are we assuming that there's water and sewer already to this land? Are you going to cover what if it doesn't have that? Well, first of all, I guess we need to establish that it, this only brings the city in if it's within city limits of Waco. Right. If it's in any other city limits, then it's a different city. Right, yeah, different jurisdiction. And if right. it's not in any city at all, like our ETJ. ETJ, then it's, there's some regulations, but so, not all yeah, of them. Right. And if they're out of the ETJ, well, first of all, ETJ is extraterritorial jurisdiction. Right, correct. And it's like a five-mile buffer right. outside of the city limit lines, right? Right. So if it's within that buffer zone, you have some regulations. Right. You do not need a per- building permit, but 
if you tie on to city utilities, water, sewer, then you got to get a permit for that part and get that inspected. Okay. So that's how the ETJ works in general. Okay. So, and then outside of the buffer zone, if you're not in, in that, you're just in the county. Yeah. How do you, what do you do there? Well, the county does have some, some guidelines to go by. I think one of the problems that the county runs into is they just don't have the inspectors oftentimes to, to handle a lot of the growth. And, and so uh, sometimes you'll see inspectors from other jurisdictions. Uh, I know one of our former inspectors has a job where he will go out in those areas and actually do some basic, basic inspections. Uh, I believe your, your lending institutions will ask for, you know, maybe a framing inspection, electrical, plumbing, just basic things. And uh, so there, there is still a need, but as far as the city goes, uh, we can talk about that. But the ETJ, unless you're tying on to our utilities, uh, you normally would not need a permit. Now, I'm not, you know, septic systems, that's a whole different animal, and we do have a, a department that deals with that. So, uh, but if, if you like, you know, whenever I can talk about a little bit going, you know, stuff in the city itself. Mm-hmm. Now you asked earlier, just just you said something about it, water and sewer. Generally, on any particularly new developments, and even some, a lot of most of your older developments, uh, there's already going to be water and sewer there in the street, or it could be in the alley. Uh, the sewer might be in the alley, so that is generally not a big issue. Uh, it's just a matter of you know your plumber tying on to all that. Um, the other thing, too, is um, one thing people may need to check on, too, is, okay, am I getting into a development where there is a homeowner's association or the deed restrictions? Because a lot of that will have might have some requirements. For example, how much percentage of brick you need on your house. Uh, that's not something the city is going to dictate. That may be your homeowner's association. It may be in the deed restrictions. Uh, if you do what's called a PUD or plan unit development, sometimes that gives a developer a, a little more options to tweak some things. But uh, it just kind of depends on, on a standard residential lot. Uh, you should already have water and sewer. So that shouldn't be something the, the owner has to worry with. Right. So let's pretend that I'm driving around. I'm from Dallas. And I'm driving around Waco, and I found me a little lot over here, and there's no house on it. <clears throat> and I've got it under contract. It's 50 feet wide mm-hmm. by 125 deep or something <clears throat> like that. And I want to build me a little house on it. What do I do? Well, generally, that's going to be your narrowest of lots, those 50-foot wide lots. Uh, some of those you can see uh, it's more of the shotgun-looking houses, the narrower house, longer houses. Uh, and, and one thing we can talk about here in a little bit is the, the tiny homes that are getting real popular. Uh, but let's just say you, you have that lot and you want to submit a plan. Um, we have, uh, your zoning books will dictate how wide your setbacks are. Generally, uh, you have, you'll have a front yard setback, a rear yard setback and two side yard setbacks. What's a setback? Uh, you ha- you cannot build within it. Generally on residential, it's five feet off each side. And so you cannot have any structure in there. I'm not talking about fences. I'm just talking or about sidewalk. structure. 
Yeah, you're talking things about like that. Now on the front, it can be it's used generally 25 feet. That's where the PUD can come in, and they may make adjustments on the setbacks. But the, but that PUD, it's all set up from the get go. I think that's an interesting point that most people don't know about is the setback deal. So just because you bought the lot and you own the land, let's say, doesn't mean you can go do whatever you want with it. Right. There's all these rules by the city, if it's in city limits, of where you can put your house or even how tall the house can be. That's right. And sometimes I'll get the question, well, you know, can I build right up to my property line? Well, no, you can't. Uh, unless it happens to be, again, and maybe a PUD where it's one of those like uh, patio homes or it may have zero lot line on one side where you maybe your garage wall is sitting right on the property line, but on the other side, it's just yard for the neighbor. Again, that's that would be an example of a PUD where it's set up that way. But generally, you have to be off the property line. And a lot of that has to do with your fire separation distance. Uh, if you have a house that had a fire, you don't want fire blowing through the window and possibly affecting your house. So a lot of this is uh, safety driven too. And and just consistency uh, yeah. and uh, the looks and appearances of a neighborhood. Yeah. So that front setback that's usually 25 feet, mm-hmm. that's so one house is not up by the sidewalk and the yeah. next one's way in the back and then the next one's by the, you know, the consistency of that look is what you're saying across down the right. block. Now, one thing you will see, uh, and, it, and you usually see this maybe in some older parts of town and it's something that you have to, you should, let me put it that way, people will put up a carport in their setback and, you know, if that if they, <laughs> if they get caught, for lack of a better term, <laughs> They have, they'll have to move it or make adjustments to it. Uh, and then people say, well, the neighbor down the street did it. Well, they may have. They may have got by it somehow. I mean, it, it happens. Yeah, you know? sure. But uh, those setbacks are there for consistency, which, you know, can help property values. Uh, if somebody's built to the code here and then somebody slips in something that's not code, it's going to affect potentially affect property values in a negative way. Yeah. In a negative way. All right. So I found this lot 50 feet. I want to build a house on it. What do I do? Well, you get some plans together. You do not have to have an architect, a licensed architect. Now there's a lot of folks around here that have uh, designed homes. I've done it for years. Uh, I can't do anything within the city limits of Waco due to me working for the city and it would be conflict of interest. But there's a lot of people that will draw you a basic set, what sometimes we'll call a builder set of plans. You know, you'll have your site plan, your foundation plan, a floor plan, four elevations, a basic wall section, and then maybe a door and window schedule, and they may have an electrical plan in there. So it's basically just a, a builder's plan that they can do some estimates, bids from, and they'll submit that to the city. Now, this... This is something I didn't cover when we were talking about commercial, but it's kind of the same thing. We submit all plans, or we require all plan submissions to be electronic. So you get it drawn up, or your whoever designs it gets it in an electronic version, or uh, has it transferred, some of these print companies, to an electronic version, and you submit that to the city. And then all of the plan review, whether it's commercial or residential, is, is done by... Uh, electronic, but it's done on the computer. It's, there's no more hand paper stuff like I grew up with. Uh, so uh, it it is it does streamline it. It's still we still got a ton of stuff that they have to look at. 
but it's all it's basically electronic plan submission now. Okay, so uh, get your plans together, builders' plans, <clears throat> submit it to the city. Mm-hmm. The city comes back and has comments. I think yes. is what it's called, and they say right. do this, do that, fix this, fix that. Right. Generally, our plan review guys, our plan review team tries to do. I mean, they are just getting crazy ideas with the market. They are still getting bombarded with tons of houses. They try to get a house plan turned within a week. A just, week? Just due to numbers. Now, if, if they're not busy, they may can take a day or two. It may take a day or two. But it also depends on the complexity and the size of the house. Now, a commercial project, as a general rule, may take a month to get the plan review comments out. And then they will compile all the different departments, uh, and then they'll send the review comment review comments to the design professional. Now, a house does not have, I mean, it doesn't have a lot of people looking at a house. It's just pretty basic. Uh, it's the commercial where you get a lot of entities involved with the plan review. But once the, once the comments are sent out, anything that's corrected, you know, if the plans are complete, it's usually a pretty slick turnaround. And then they can, their builder, whoever that is, they can, they can start the construction process. Okay. So it comes out of comments and then they can start. And then at that point you can bring a tractor out there and start turning dirt. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, and this is another difference between the residential. Generally all the sites on the residential development, it's already prepped and ready to start the foundation pad and construction on bigger projects, like you see, like in our industrial district, I'll just throw this in real quick. They do have a, they do have it set up. They being the, the plan review team has it set up where you can get maybe a site clearing permit or just a foundation permit once the plans have been submitted. So they do that just to help a developer get started with the project while the rest of the review is taking place. But again, on residential development, you don't have all that extra time for other departments looking at your plans. So on residential development, let's go back to our house example. Can you, you can start before you, the plans come back um, to the builder or come out of the city, you can be digging the holes and putting. Well, your... no, you're, you're really not supposed to be doing that. Uh, what I'm getting at is if there's not any big hangups with any reviews and you get the permit, uh, then the builder can start prepping his foundation. Um, mm. The residential is a lot simpler is what I'm yeah. trying to say. Yeah. Uh, they, they do have some provisions for commercial work that's, you know, it's a different animal. Okay. So let's advance the story. Uh, we've got the plans back from the city. We got the blessing from the city mm-hmm. to start building. The builder starts build, building the, the house mm-hmm. foundation. Are we kind of done with the city at this point? Or are they going to do monthly inspections? Are they inspecting every time that there's a, a framing inspection and a plumbing inspection and a, and a mechanical? Right. Are they what, all what, of the above? All yeah. of those things. Yeah. Once the permits issued and the contractor has started, houses re- are required to have an engineered foundation, and so the engineer of record, whoever that is, uh, will actually inspect the foundation prior to the concrete being poured, make sure everything is in place, the rebar, the sand, everything's, you know, plumbing's wrapped. That's a city employee? No, no, that's the engineer. That's a, that's a third party. 
Third, well, yeah, basically Engineer. it's a third party. We used to do that several years ago, and then we, we got away from it. Now, smaller stuff, if it's just a real small addition, um, yeah, we'll probably, we would look at that. But I'm talking about a brand new house mm-hmm. like you're talking about. Yeah. The engineer record would look at it. So he goes out there, or she stamps yeah. it, it says, <clears throat> this has been prepped right or right. whatever, sends it to you guys? Well, they send us a letter saying it's been inspected. Yeah. And we put that on file. And okay. that way, uh, the ladies that handle the permitting, scheduling, the different inspections, they'll say, okay, we've got the letter. It's on file. We're mm-hmm. good on that part. Okay. Now, once it's in the framing stage, or the electrical, plumbing, uh, HVAC, all of those have inspections and they always they have to be done in order uh so uh like you need to get your your you'll have your framing but you'll have your plumbing and electrical rough is what we call them they run the wires or they run the basic plumbing lines through the the studs and all that then we can once that passes then we can get like a framing inspection and they'll make sure that well when the plumber cut a hole in my stud he didn't tear up the studs, you know, that's what gets framers a little aggravated at times, but there is a process. And then once the framing is passed and, you know, you'll have your windows in and your, your outside sealed up around the windows, that sort of thing. Then they can start putting the insulation in. Now you may have the, just a typical bad insulation. You may have the, the spray in cellulose type, or of course, a lot of people use the spray foam. Uh, insulation and there's some guidelines for that too fire ratings and things like that so there is a process a systematic process that, that's outlined in the in the codes that, that we follow so how does how does the city know when to send out the inspector for plumbing or electrical or whatever the contractor or the subs call it in for example your plumber your electrical and HVAC guy, they have to call in their inspections when they are ready. After it's done. Yeah, when they get when they are ready for an inspection. They think it's good. And our inspector comes out there and inspects whatever they're inspecting. They'll either pass it or they may fail it due to something that's not installed correctly. Then the contractor and his sub has to go back, fix it, call in another inspection. And once that's passed, then, you know, that opens a door for other inspections. Have you ever had some builder that doesn't know these rules and they just kind of blow through? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and you get to where your walls are painted and you're like, oh, I had to have the yep. plumbing inspection. Oh, yeah. What happens then? Uh, usually, in some cases, they have to open up the walls again so we can see. To look at everything. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the things we hear a lot of is, particularly in cases like that, is, well, they let us do it down here in this city. They let us do it in Temple. They let us do it in Dallas. You know, it doesn't matter. This is Waco. We have to go by our rules and our guidelines. And it's uh, it's really on them to know what our guidelines are. And when you get in a hurry and make assumptions, that's where you start getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it can be a frustrating process for, you know, the builder and, and a frustrating process for us too because – our guys don't go up there wanting to fail somebody. They want, you know, we, we try to help them pass if at all possible, but sometimes we just cannot do yeah. it. Yeah. So let me let me kind of throw in something that's sure. kind of tied to that as far as the, the plan submission. Occasionally, we will have somebody that uh, maybe they have a really odd-shaped lot. Maybe there's some 
a plumbing line for some reason cutting across the back property or maybe there's a drop off in the back and there is a possibility of them them the designer the homeowner asking for a variance of some sort to the requirements and the variance like i say it could be for some uh odd shape lot that causes them to do something with their house or whatever uh, you can't just overbuild on a lot and say, I want a variance. That doesn't work that way. You have to see a hardship. Yeah. You have and to have a good ha- reason. You have to have a good reason. That's exactly right. And you have to prove it. to. Uh, there's a group that looks at those. It's and called the look, variance this, board. Var- yeah. Is, and you have to say, okay, I'm asking for a variance because this is, I can't get my house to do exactly what I want because of that drop off or whatever it may be. Yeah. So there is a process for a variance, but again, you have to have a good reason. You have to have a hardship yeah. to ask for it. So I don't know if you knew, but I was on that board before okay. the, the okay. variance board. Uh, so that's a city of Waco board, and it's right. just like you say, if someone if odd shape lot, and we uh, something we saw a lot was uh, many times, excuse me, something we saw many times yeah. on a lot yeah. was it was an odd shape lot, and the house that they wanted to build. It would encroach on those setbacks that we right, were talking about, right. either the 25 feet or the five on the side. Right. So your foundation or whatever's leaning over and the mm-hmm. setback a foot or something right. just because of the shape of the lot. Well, that's the kind of the hardship. They're like, well, we want to build this house, and this is the only way we can make this footprint work. We give right. us the variance for one foot or yeah. whatever it was. And so, yeah, you have to go, you have to, go to the city staff. You have right. to fill out the paperwork and say, here's what we're trying to do and here's the hardship and why we want it. And then you have to go before the board, which is made up of community volunteers who hear the cases and that, that board actually votes yes or no Mm -hmm. on, on your little application there. Right. Yeah. There is a, there is a, uh, billing inspection advisory and appeals board, but that's more for your, uh, bigger commercial projects. It, It does, it works basically the same way, but, uh, um, that board can generally uh, hear a possible solution that somebody has, um, and then they'll vote on whether they think that meets the intent of the code or not. Mm. So it's a little more involved on the commercial end, but they basically do the same thing as as the board that you were on. Uh, Let's see. All right, so we got, you want to advance the story. So we had all our inspections done. The builder's almost done with the right. house. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's almost time for a final CO, isn't it? Right. All of your different uh, trades have to get their final inspection. There's a final plumbing. There's a final electrical, final HVAC. And uh, and then you're if those are all passed, then you can set up for a final overall building inspection. Now, do for a house for a house for a house. Now you do have to have, you know, uh, your yard in. I mean, and that's more. That's not a building code deal. That's our our planning ordinance on on landscaping and how much landscaping you got to have and and that sort of thing. Uh, that's where it sometimes get a little gets a little dicey, only because. As you know, if we have a lot of rain and they can't get the landscaping in. Then we have to we have to try to find a way to work with them as best we can. Sure. So that does happen. We understand that happens, uh, but you know sometimes they want to call an inspection in and it's not ready because they don't have the minimum landscaping requirements in. 
And then you throw in, okay, well, I've got an irrigation system, which is kind of a, you, that's not a requirement for codes. You know, a lot of people do on irrigations, but there's guidelines for that too. So it sounds like with these final inspections with mm-hmm. all the same subs or right. whoever's doing right. the plumbing, and I mean, the city of Waco can touch one house or each and every house. I've counted about eight or nine times if you don't get called back for failing and whatever right. else. I mean, it sounds like with the permit, pro, I mean, the city of Waco, that's a, that's a lot to do for every single house. Yep. And we're being flooded, right. with, exactly flooded right. with opportunities, people needing to build these houses. So, I mean, to me, that's a lot of, of oversight and right. a lot of a lot of hands on, on each project. You know, what was interesting when I first came to the city 20 <clears> years ago, uh, I was the plan reviewer. I was it. I mean, I had to review all the houses. Now, we didn't have construction going on like it is now, but for one person, I had to do all the houses. I had to do all the commercials and had to get the plans distributed to the other departments, and it just it just got overwhelming. But for four and a half years, I did all that by myself oh, wow. for the most part. You should have so. called me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, we've got uh, we got a you know good group now, and uh, I think we've got eight inspectors and uh, supervisor over three plan reviews. Actually, our billing official can do some plan review on the electrical side too, because his elect- he's got electrical background. But still, I mean, we just. With all the stuff going on, and you and you've seen all the hotels and stuff, on top of all the residential stuff that's going on, are y'all looking to hire? Do you know more? Because I I keep hearing you know how long it's taken to get all this stuff through. Right. How, how do y'all? How are y'all dealing with that right now? Well, uh, right now this is the most number of inspectors we've ever had. Oh, okay. And we've got two combination inspectors. We used to not have any combination inspectors. Some cities that's all they have. Uh, somewhere back down the line before I came to the city, it was decided, you know, we'd have one inspector per trade. But with the way things are developing, we've got at least two guys that could do all the inspections for the most part by themselves if, if needed. Uh, we've got inspectors that'll go out like we, uh, we may have talked about a commercial check. Somebody goes into your building and they want to talk to you about leasing there's usually a commercial check done if they just want to move in as is. Yeah. Uh, but we've got a we've got a good team of inspectors now, uh, so we may expand. You know, if if Waco keeps going like it is, you know, who knows? We we may. So. All right. Let's put the final nail in the coffin on our imaginary house we're building. You've had your finals from all the subs on the plumbing and HVAC and all the things, and then we need the final. Inspection, Final inspection in order for someone to get the power on is or uh, uh, what do they get? Yeah, I mean they can get a temporary. Uh, we call it temporary final, for lack of better terms. They can get the electricity turned up. Sometimes you have to have the the AC running so you can put the flooring down. So, but they're all you know that has to be stuff falling in place. Now, a contractor can use up until a point they have to use a generator to do the yeah. basic work. Yeah. But you get to that point where, you know, you get your final inspection and then we're done. Owner can move in and set up shops. But aren't I, I think the city's holding on to something. There's something I don't remember what it is, but it's uh like in in commercial my world it's usually Encore, which is right. the electricity needs that final CO in order to get the power turned mm-hmm. on on a house. It's you can't move in um, until you get that final CEO for something, they're holding. 
Yeah, and it it may be the the electrical. Uh, if there's anything else being held, it's it's maybe some other inspection. Maybe maybe the landscaping wasn't done. Uh, that kind of thing. And and it's not raining. It's just they just didn't get the yeah the stuff done. Uh, it's probably though what you're thinking about probably has to do with uh, some electrical. It's something. Um, I did a house sale. Probably it's probably been a year ago, and that's why my memory's fuzzy, but. The house was done, and the, the buyer's ready to close, but we couldn't close because we couldn't get the final CO, and it had something to do with electric meter or something or other. Yeah, that's that probably happens more times than not. Now, t- and two, just a reminder, people still have to go through our water department and, and get their meter, get their account set up for their water meter and all that kind of stuff. So it, it is kind of, <laughs> it all it's yeah. all part of getting into the new house kind of thing. Okay. You want to move on to a different scenario or, or, or tiny homes or? Well, yeah. Let me just um, let me just throw this out. One of the things you're you're seeing more of, as a matter of fact, the 2018 International Residential Code does have a tiny home section. And let me just give you an example of what would be a tiny home. The city like, of Waco uses the 2018. Right now, code. we're on the 2018 International Residential International. Code, and yeah. that's. Is it supposed the intention of that is supposed to be standardized standardized across the board and easy for everyone, right? Right, right, you know, around the country. Now, here's the deal: individual cities yeah. can make amendments to the fit code. their specific requirements. Yeah. And we we do that some here at the city, not a lot, uh, but we do a few little modifications on the residential code but it's primarily on the, the commercial codes and things like that. But we try to we try to stick with it. Now, this the tiny home deal is okay. in this, the uh, uh, appendix. It's one of the appendix. And let me give you an example. What, what, what's a tiny home? A tiny home, uh, by definition, yeah. is a dwelling that is 400 square feet or less in floor area, excluding a loft. Excluding a loft. So, you know, your loft area... Uh, it says here, loft shall have a floor area of not less than 35 square feet. Okay. So these are true tiny homes. Uh, and so there are guidelines for that. Um, and so that's become such a, a popular deal that uh, they've added it into into the code. Okay. So, well, do we have any zoning in, in city limits that yeah, allow? Yeah, I mean... Again, the zoning is going to be more, you know, for your narrow lots. Uh, you may it may not technically be a tiny home like you're talking about earlier. I mean, it could be bigger than 400 square feet. It just wouldn't meet the definition of a tiny home. Uh, and so, but you got a narrow lot. My house can only be this wide type of deal. So a tiny home uh, is is truly that. I don't know. There's a. Do you have to have a special permit? To- um, the special permit. Generally, no, unless you're in an area that the city has designated. And they've got their zoning charts that says, okay, yeah. you need a special permit. You usually see p- special permits on commercial. You don't really hmm. see them that okay. much on the residential I'm, I'm See, I'm trying to f- figure out <clears throat> what zoning where we could put a special uh, a uh, tiny home. Well, most of your uh, uh, R1B zoning is your your single-family residential zoning. Um, there are some R2 zones where you see, like, duplexes and things like that. 
But generally, your R1B is your straight okay. single-family residential zoning. Um, now, mm-hmm. people, since we're talking about that, if people are looking at an area and want to know, they can go on to our city website under planning, and it's got, I think it's under Waco Maps, I think is where they find it. And they can find the different zoning categories. And um, since, like you, since you brought that up, this whole the whole permit process, on, for example, on a new house, isn't that also that we were talking about previously? Isn't that also online that someone can start an account like the builder or something? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, they have to get an account with us. Yeah. Uh, we have an online portal. It's all online. Yeah. Uh, somebody never done this before can go down there. It's online, uh, and, and it'll walk you through setting up your own account. And once you have an account set up, that's yours. Yeah. So any future stuff that you do, uh, you can just use your account to submit plans. Now, one thing that we do that we have asked in the past is that if you do upload something, go ahead and give us a quick call or email to let us know it's there. So it won't, we've got so much coming in, we want to at least know it's there yeah. and get it logged in. Uh, so uh, that that is, that is one thing uh, that we do. Got it. Now... I don't know how much time I got left, but uh, we should probably start. start Yes. Okay. Let me just, let me just throw this out and we can discuss this more in the future. There is, and this falls under actually the commercial code, but there is a kind of a different animal called a live work unit. And basically it's where the person that has a business on the first floor can maybe live in the house on the second floor. But again, there are certain, stipulations for it to fall into that category. Okay. Uh, and we, we may can deal with this on a future uh, uh, episode, but uh, it's got some, it's got some square footage requirement maximum. Uh, you can, you can't have a lot of people employees coming and parking at your house. There's limits on that. So, but that's called a live work unit. That's not new to the codes. It's been there for the last uh, two or three cycles of codes, but uh, what does that look like in real life? Can you do you have one in your in your mind that's on the ground now? Like, is it a retail store downstairs and it's your apartment upstairs? Right. The one that I think about here in Waco, and I don't this this has been there long before this came about. Uh, MC Art Supplies, I think they live in their top part of their house, but they're their art stores on the bottom floor. I mean, it's a neat setup, but that's kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, you you actually own the business, mm. but you live at your business above above it. Mm. So if it uh, and again that is in the commercial code, but they they don't put on some of the requirements as long as you meet the stipulations on size, uh, your exits, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a lot. To, I mean, there's a lot more we could get into on that. Yeah. But that's just does that require version. a special zoning? Where would you put uh, like that art yeah, supplies building? I, what, what I don't it? know. I'd have to I'd have to go back and check. That's a good question. I'd have to go back and check and see. Because I live like in an R one R one B out in like SunWest right. residential. Yeah. I couldn't do this live work unit, right? Right. That is a, that would be a good question to ask our. Uh, uh, planning department, uh, Mark Boyd in our planning, Beatrice Wharton, some of those those folks could help with that specific question. 
but I think you do have to have, you know, you've got these O2 zones and stuff like that for office, uh, commercial zones. And so uh, that is what you would have to uh, check mm. with us and just yeah. see. Cool. It's good and again, know. with any of these, call us before you spend a lot of time, money on plans. Make sure you can do what you want to do on the zone and on the property. Yeah, for sure. Good. Any final thoughts? Uh, no, I'm sure there's a lot of things I'll think of once I leave. But that's uh, all right. We you can, can, you're invited back already. Okay. Well, good, good. Well, that's 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 a good. Day. I will say one final thing. Tell me, the uh, for people that interested, we do have free handouts. I like free basic. Yeah. The price is right. Free mm-hmm. handouts, uh, like applying for residential permit. It's oh. just a basic code package. It's not all inclusive, but it gives you the basic requirements for getting a permit, How what to do you it. need to submit and some basic code requirements. How do they get this piece of paper right here? They can come down to our city office at the main Jackson center, 401 Franklin Avenue, uh, development services, and just ask for a residential guideline packet do they ask for you personally and and are you doing autographs or (laughs) or how's your time i mean i will i will help them but the ladies at our front desk do a good job with that oh man uh, how many times are you being stopped on the street bobby for (laughs) (laughs) you do an excellent job in here well you are the star of the show well no thank you this this is a blast i have fun doing this but uh anyway um my phone's not ringing off the wall yet so (laughs) we'll keep at it (laughs) Thanks, Bobby, right, so much. Thank you. Good job. You bet. Okay. You can find me on social media if you search for Nathan Embry CCIM. My website, where you can see my listings, is kellyrealtorscommercial.com. Waco Real Estate Today is produced by Rogue Media Network. You can find more of their podcasts at roguemedianetwork.com. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.